Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you, our maker, who moved by mercy, sent Jesus to be God with us, our Emmanuel. We thank you that he has walked our pathways, that he knows our grief, and we thank you that death will not prevail. We pray that that would really overshadow everything today, the way we listen to you, the way we move from here, the way we apply your word, our attitudes, our hearts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an understandably difficult world to live in and know how to navigate well. If only there were some kind of guidebook that could give us wisdom for life's journey. Oh, wait. <laughs> Though this is much more than just a guidebook. It's God's self-revelation to us. But as that, it's actually naturally has so much wisdom contained in these pages for us. But even then, we know it's still a struggle because we live in a broken, sinful world as broken, sinful people. Thus, we have wisdom on the one hand and pervasive wickedness on the other. Abuses of power, injustice, human suffering, and ultimately death. What light can wisdom shine into these dark areas of our life experiences? Because some people believe that having faith means naively turning a blind eye to humanity's struggles. Acting or pretending as if life is all hunky-dory and a kumbaya sing-along. The Bible never turns a blind eye to the harsh realities of the life we experience as human beings. And rarely is this more obvious than in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've been studying together. And you can turn there with me now if you open up a Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Or sorry, chapter 8 today. Chapter 8. Ecclesiastes is part of a literary genre in the Bible we call wisdom literature. So it has pretty unique styles and emphases and purposes compared to other books of the Bible. For example, it contains fewer commands and promises, as you would find elsewhere, and more proverbs and principles and just general good advice. And we're right in the thick of, the, of, the, of this wisdom lit when it comes to, Je to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Two weeks ago in chapter 7, it told us that life in a fallen world is vain. It's fleeting, it's frustrating, and yet it can still be better with wisdom. And today's passage kicks off with a proverb that marvels at wisdom. Look at it in verse 1. It says, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Essentially, it's saying wisdom softens us in a good way. It can even brighten up our faces. Now, when the Bible talks about shining faces, it most often refers to God's face shining upon us such as in the familiar benediction blessing of number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And this imagery refers to God radiating grace and goodness and peace to us, flowing from him to us. So when Ecclesiastes then tells us that wisdom can make our faces shine, I believe it's implying that if we have wisdom, we, it will make us gentler, more gracious, like God is. Hardness of our face thus symbolizes the opposite. 
ungentleness or ungraciousness. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, true wisdom transforms our demeanor, even gives us a face-changing joy. Now Solomon is not just telling us to put on a happy face and shine like a star. No, he's more echoing, echoing something that his dad, David, said in Psalm 34, that those who look to the Lord are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Several years ago, an atheist journalist with the Times, Matthew Paris, wrote about what he saw as a strange phenomenon in certain African countries, especially in his native Malawi. And he said that what he saw in Christians there confounded his ideological beliefs, stubbornly refused to fit his worldview, and kept embarrassing his belief that there is no God. He argued that, that people's faith in Christ made a tangible difference in their lives, an observable difference, even affecting their appearance. So the Christians are always different. Their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Something changed in the faces of the people we passed and spoke to. Something in their eyes and the way they approached you. Maybe you can testify to seeing this difference in someone that you know. Someone whose godly wisdom has seemed to make their face shine. And I thought through who I know in my life like this, I actually thought of quite a lot of you in this church. It's quite apparent. It. You might think in the Bible of Moses, how after spending time with God, in God's presence, his face literally shone. This figuratively happens to us when God gives us the gift of his wisdom. He rubs off on us. We have a glow from him. And this kind of godly wisdom is worth desiring and pursuing wholeheartedly. The rest of chapter 8 shows us aspects of how this wisdom plays out in our broken world. And at one point, Solomon refers to people who know how to act, those are those who are wise, as wise hearts. Wise hearts. And I like that name. It implies that we are people with hearts and minds. Even as fallen humans, we can learn and grow and become wiser. And at the same time, we have hearts, and our, our hearts will feel and hurt and worry and enjoy and love. So, are you a wise heart? Do you want to be a wise heart? If so, we must first learn this. That wise hearts properly navigate human power. Wise hearts properly navigate human power, which the first big paragraph here is all about. Look with me in verse 2. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. As some translations say, because of your oath before God. Either way, this teaches us to obey our earthly authorities. And the king's court is the first of three scenes that we enter into this chapter. The king's court. Now, we Canadians have a new king for the first time in most of our lifetimes. However, for most of us, this would actually better apply, more directly apply, to our own Canadian rulers and government. And this is something that we actually had to quite, think quite a lot about in recent years, right? With COVID restrictions, new counseling laws, made referral requests for medical people, more. There are, there are definitely times that we must, as believers in God, we must obey God rather than man. Yet, the Bible's consistent drumbeat is that whenever that is not the case, we must obey man. Because even our human rulers have been placed there by God under his rule 
and under his authority. The advice here in Ecclesiastes is a bit more basic and pragmatic, though, saying something like, obey human powers because you are less powerful than they are. And therefore, it would be dangerous and treacherous not to. Look at verse 3. It says, be not hasty to go from the king's presence, because hurrying from a king's presence would be seen as a sign of disrespect. And do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? And this seems to be speaking of a king with near absolute power. Maybe Solomon was talking about himself from experience, how to approach him. Or maybe he's referring to, to powerful rulers that he'd seen in his explorations. Now, whether or not a ruler should have so much power is kind of beside the point. Because in our world, they often do. And wisdom tells us the logical thing to do to keep yourself out of trouble is to not oppose the king. In particular, don't plot against him joining in what he calls an evil cause. Now, to be clear, he's not saying there's never a time to take a stand against an evil ruler. Godly people often did so in the Bible, and God honored them for it. He's saying to exercise caution, discretion, respect, and righteousness. Basically, even if the king is evil, don't return evil for evil. Otherwise, be prepared to face the personal consequences, which may be grave. Verse 5 goes on to say, Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise will know the proper time and the just way. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. That's not a promise, by the way. That's a principle. Obedience brings blessing. Submitting to authority will often keep us safe from harm from authority. It's like what Solomon says in Proverbs 24, where he says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster and ruin are going to strike them. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So if you are a wise heart, you have a wise heart, you'll know the proper time to speak up or to stay quiet. You'll know how to act with authorities. So, do you see? Even in this fallen world, we're not just stranded in a chaotic moral morass. There are right ways and wrong ways to treat those that God places above us. Godly wisdom helps us know the right way to live, even in Canada, even in our times. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Are you, are you thankful that God has revealed his moral truth to us, particularly through his word? And in all of this, though, don't lose sight of the fact that we serve a greater king of a greater kingdom. Right, who, who shockingly, in his time on this broken world, demonstrated submission to authority. He even let evil rulers like Herod, Pilate, or Caiaphas have their way with him. He was submissive to them out of, out of a submissiveness to God his Father. He took on our humanity at his birth, and then he felt the full weight of our human evil at his death. And God used even that great injustice to bring peace and grace to our broken world. So Jesus, who had the wisest heart of all, always knew the proper time and the just way. And the more we learn to follow in his footsteps, so will we. The wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. It goes on. For there is a time and a way for 
everything. That echoes chapter 3, right? For everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And the wise person is aware of this. They're aware of God's time. But, but this time, there's a, a more somber ending to that thought. It says, there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Man's trouble, or you could say the evil of humanity. Our fallenness is a heavy weight. I remember going backpacking through Algonquin Park with 50 to 70 pound backpacks on. By the end of the day, every muscle ached, even ones I didn't know I had before. But the weight of our packs would wear us down one step at a time. And we, in a sense, are trudging through life weighed down by the burden of brokenness around us and in us. And it doesn't just make our muscles ache, it makes our hearts heavy. And one of the hardest parts of this burden is our relative ignorance and weakness. Look at verse 7. It says, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Like, we can't know the future. We don't know our next steps. Not even the wisest people know it all. Not even close. Even worse, there's something in our future that we unequivocally cannot change. Verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. We've talked a lot about death lately. That'll continue through Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7 told us that better is the day of death than the day of birth because we gain more wisdom from dying than from being born. I hope that some of you gleaned some of this wisdom yesterday at Grace's funeral. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The point here is, unless, God forbid, you kill yourself, you have no control over your death date. You have no idea when it will be. You can't stop it when it comes for you. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. You're like, you know how much time and effort go into, has gone into and is going into trying to achieve immortality? Futurists or transhumanists have kind of crazy dreams and high hopes for technology. But no one can solve the decaying entropy of our human bodies. Most say to eventually achieve immortality, we'll actually have to do away with our bodies. But then we'd amount to cyborgs or brains in jars or a code in clouds. Do we want that? No, the fact of the matter is, you are a divinely fused together body and spirit or soul. And they will only be separated by death. And when that happens, you'll have no way to keep your body and spirit together. No man can retain the spirit. What does this all have to do with our point, though, that wise hearts properly navigate human power? Well, in this case, death is the ultimate and supreme limit to human power. Right? And, and if we're wise we will come to grips with this reality. We often feel powerless when it comes to sin as well. As he goes on to say, says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So like soldiers can't be discharged from the army when, army when a war is raging, so sinners can't simply be delivered or released from wickedness. It's likely Solomon is relating these metaphors to death as well, saying that death is a dark battle that we can't escape or cheat our way out of. In summary, death and sin have us in such deep bondage 
There is no freeing ourselves from them. And in verse 9, Solomon laments that this is our reality under the sun. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Sadly, human power is often wielded in a way that it hurts and harms those under it, even harms those wielding it. Solomon applied his heart and and tried his best to understand, but these facts bothered him. People have no power over death, but they do often have power over other people. Oppression from those in authority is tragic, and it's tragically all too common. Solomon doesn't give us advice here for how to navigate oppression, though we may know. Sometimes we can resist. Sometimes we can endure. Sometimes we're helpless. Sometimes all we can do is lament and to pray. Lament the brokenness of our world. Also, we may see the abuse of power of humanity in ourselves and our own actions at times. And that should really sober us up, should humble us and lead us to repent. Jesus showed us a different kind of power in his life, in lowering himself to serve. And now we confess our belief that one day, in his name, all oppression shall cease. All oppression shall cease. In the meantime, though, the the practical realities of oppression and injustice are so challenging. Yes, one day God will judge, but we wrestle with why he hasn't intervened already. It's no wonder that that's where Solomon takes us next as we enter into a second scene of the graveyard. And what we're going to learn here is that wise hearts fearfully outlast human injustice. Wise hearts, fearfully, also patiently, outlast human injustice. Don't you ever get frustrated when corrupt politicians get reelected or retain their power? Or when a tyrant's war succeeds at expanding their tyranny? When terrorist plots succeed and then they may even get painted as the good guys? When a greedy millionaire gets to enjoy all the finest luxuries this life has to offer? When vulnerable seniors get robbed of their savings by heartless scam artists. When an immoral pop star gets all the hottest bachelors or supermodels on their arm. When cheaters sometimes do prosper, whether at school or at work. This is when death will actually be really good news. Look at verse 10. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. So this was the height of their evil. They were profaning, mistreating holy things. We think, well, yes, their wickedness will finally come to an end. And yet it says that They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. So, wait, like once they died, they even then continued to be praised? Buried with honor? No wonder Solomon calls this vanity. He says this also is vanity. How utterly frustrating. But this vanity is double-sided. 
right? It may be frustrating for us to see evil people's legacies praised, and yet their wickedness is vanity for them too, and that it is quickly fleeting and will come to an end. They are buried in the end. But how is it that such evil can not only be tolerated, but even celebrated by a society? I believe it stems from people not believing in God or that God will judge them. Because if there is no judgment, nothing coming, then the morality or immorality of any action doesn't really matter in the end. And it, and it might appear to us that judgment is seriously delayed. Look at verse 11. It says, because, this is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And there's the third scene for us, at the courtroom. Derek Kinder comments here. There are few things more obnoxious than the sight of wicked men flourishing and complacent. Yet wickedness respected and blessed is even more sickening. In the spectacle described here, the villains are being honored at the very scene of their misdeeds, and they are no longer alive to cast their spell of fear or favor over anyone. So incredibly enough, the admiration must be genuine, making it very clear that popular moral judgments can be totally astray, swayed by the evidence of success or failure, and construing heaven's patience as its approval. The dictator or the corrupt tycoon may have bent the rules, it will be said, but after all, they got things done, they had flair, they lived in style. In the now and the not yet, the seeming slowness of judgment can be agonizing. We construe heaven's patience as its approval. But God is not slow. He's patient, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And the graveyard gives us perspective. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. And then jump down to verse 12 with me, where it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So under the sun, it can sure seem like evil people endlessly get away with their evil. The blasphemers may curse God with their words a hundred times and never get stopped. The bullies may give the little guys a hundred poundings seem to get away with it. The abusers may rack up a hundred victims with no charges ever pressed. Or, if we're honest, maybe you or I get away with a certain sin a hundred times over. And on top of this, it says someone's evil behavior may even seem to prolong their life, letting them live out their days in more wealth or comfort or good health. Consider, wicked Barabbas' days were prolonged the very day Jesus was killed. But that's not the whole picture. Look at verse 12 again. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Like What a statement of faith. Right? Did you notice those three words in the middle of the verse? Yet I know. I know this. Like Solomon, despite all the maybe current evidence to the contrary, he was confident and he was convinced that even when it seems like the wicked prosper, that would end. It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days because he does not fear before God. However long they seem to prolong their days, they can't prolong them forever. And when God shows up to finally judge evil, he will reverse his people's plight. It will be well. I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will be 
well. It will go better for them. They'll be better off in the end. As Kidner says, wickedness digs its own grave and righteousness its own garden. A question. What's the only difference between the two groups of people described here in verses 12 and 13? They f- the fear of the Lord, right? One group fears God. The other does not fear God. One group humbly reverently and joyfully worships God and seeks to follow his ways. The other group downplays, disregards, or even disdains him. Truly, whether or not you fear God will determine everything about you. You know that? And this doesn't contradict with the gospel of grace at all. Because those who fear God will see their sin and need for grace all the better. And they will be much quicker to place all of their trust in the Lord to save them. Which he ultimately does through the death and resurrection of Christ. And so the fear of the Lord opens our eyes to this. So do you fear God Do you need him? Do you believe Jesus is Lord and King and Judge? And have you turned from your sins and turned to him for salvation? If not, the absolute best thing you can do today is that. To to really get yourself in right order in the universe. To situate yourself under Jesus as Lord. But I wonder, no matter who you are, can you make the confession that Solomon makes here? Can you state, purely by faith, that you know it will be well for those who fear God? Because that can totally change your outlook on life today. It can radically affect your attitude, your mood. It can transform your face even. Go ahead. If you believe it, read verse 12 aloud right now together. Okay? Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Julian of Norwich is known for the saying, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's essentially the message here. All shall be well one day. But until that day comes, in the face of present-day evil, this remains a confession of faith. When you boil it down, Wisdom is telling us that we will need to outlast human injustice, or rather, that we will outlast it, that this is going to happen. So have faith. Trust the Lord in this. Verse 14 carries on with the themes of injustice. It says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. I see Solomon just shaking his head in bewilderment here. <laughs> this also is vanity. The message paraphrases this verse as, here's something that happens all the time and makes no sense at all. Sometimes the exact opposite of what our hearts say should happen is what happens. And I won't go much deeper on this today, but if you struggle with these thoughts at all, maybe often, the best place I can point you to just encourage you to meditate on or to pray through is Psalm 73. Write it down, you can go there later. Psalm 73 where the psalmist grapples with the seeming of injustice of these very things, and yet he finds peace enough for today 
as he worships the Lord and contemplates death. Finally, coming to this confession, my heart and my, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Oh, one other thing I'll say. Isaiah 53 talks about how the suffering servant, that is Christ, would be taken away and killed by oppression and judgment. It's a perversion of justice. Most righteous man to ever walk the earth had his days cut short. And yet, out of that anguish, God prospered him, it says. And God prolonged his days, giving Christ full satisfaction of soul, giving us our redemption. So take heart that God can redeem even the worst injustice we see in the world. And while a wise heart can't necessarily overcome wickedness, it can help you outlast it. Perhaps it's, it's some of these truths that, that help Solomon reach a very unlikely conclusion. That in light of all the, the baffling injustice he observed, you'd think he'd only be sorrowful, only sad. But no, on the contrary, look at verse 15. It says, and I commend joy. What? <laughs> joy? Yes. Joy. So I said this is also vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Here's the point I think this verse tells us, that wise hearts joyfully receive human life. Wisdom helps our hearts joyfully receive human life as a gift from God. And if you've been tracking with us in Ecclesiastes, this will not be a new idea to you. But it's actually, it's really jarring here. Like we couldn't see it coming with all the injustice and vanity that he's talking about. But I think it's actually all that vanity that leads him directly to this recommendation. From one angle, in the big picture... Even all this world's injustice will pass by quickly. Soon enough, we will outlast it. So, there's no need to wallow in gloom. From another angle, we should take nothing for granted. Because as sinners in a cursed world, we're entitled to nothing from God. Nothing is guaranteed in life. Nothing good is really deserved. Therefore, be grateful and enjoy whatever you're given. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. To put it bluntly, similar to what I've said in other sermons here, Sometimes this world royally stinks, and yet we still get to enjoy tacos and milkshakes. Right, don't, don't turn a blind eye to the brokenness of the world, but don't needlessly focus on it either. We ought to pay special attention to the good things of life that God gives us. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So if this joy goes with us in our toil or all our activities under the sun throughout our life, I think it's saying that there is always something to notice and appreciate about life wherever you are. Even little things like a glass of cold water. Even mundane things, like socks. Even hard things, like work. Because God, 
nourishes and sustains us for it too. Every day we have is a gift from God, from the God who loves us. And notice that when you receive a gift from God, you have evidence that God is with you right then and there. And he's the best gift of all. It's like Paul says in Philippians 4, writing from prison, under oppression, in pain, saying, rejoice in the Lord always. (laughs) Again, I will say rejoice. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Focus on them. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. One scholar points out how the only time in the Torah where those three verbs appear, eat, drink, and rejoice, where they appear together, is in Deuteronomy 14, where Moses tells Israel to pay tithes at the temple, And there, they're commanded to celebrate before the Lord with feasting. So he claims that when Solomon draws these together and tells us to eat, drink, enjoy life, he's really calling us all to worship. That this, this Lord that we have is the one who satisfies our longings. And so we fear him and we rejoice in him. Someone here recently passed on to me a superb article by Erica Brown called A Theology of Distraction, which starts out by admitting some days it's just hard to get out of bed. Each morning we confront our prosaic disappointments and life regrets again. These mixed with global news of raging wildfires, impending hurricanes, and an ugly war on the other side of the world. The anguish of it all smothers us like a heavy blanket. And then she turns to Ecclesiastes to help here, showing how it offers us a theology of distraction. In that, it's verses of joy typically follow passages on the stabbing assault, mortality, or injustice, one right after the other. So right after darkness, the sun comes out. Speaking specifically of these verses in chapter 8, she says that verse 14, dark verse, is followed by joy, as that's the best way to respond to the crushing realities of injustice. And she explains... Ecclesiastes is not trivializing our major existential issues by suggesting a good meal, but merely acknowledging that the larger challenges are out of our control. We can either be devastated by uncertainty and unfairness or do what we know how to do well, seek pleasure in what God has given us. Whether or not we want to admit it, distraction works. It's the interruption that lightens our full attention from utter sadness. It's the slivers of enjoyment, the fleeting bliss, and the moments of wonder that soften the harshness. They are just as real. They, too, are divinely ordained. We cannot make today's worst news go away. We can get out of bed, make a hot cup of coffee, breathe in the steam and the smell, say a small prayer of thanks, and get on with the day. See how joyfully receiving human life is actually one of the wisest things our hearts can do? However, right as we start enjoying the sunshine here, it quickly goes back behind the clouds. Even though he trusts God and commends joy, Solomon ends in some confusion in verses 16 and 17. It says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. 
So his frustration shows us one final brief point. But it's an important one nonetheless. The wise hearts realistically seek human wisdom. So within the human limits that God gives us, wise hearts will realistically seek for wisdom. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business, he says, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Verses 16 and 17 are the bookends to how the chapter began in verse 1. Verse 1 praised wisdom, showed how it can transform us for the better. Now, verses 16 and 17 limit wisdom and show us that it can only do so much. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now notice, where does Solomon realize these limits on our wisdom? As he considered God. As he looked to God, he realized his limits. Then I saw all the work of God. The man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Compared to God's wisdom and God's works, we know so very little. His wisdom is infinite. His work is perfect. Ours are decidedly not. And even though God has revealed some of his divine wisdom to us in his word and in Christ, the Bible calls the power of God and the wisdom of God, none of us can figure out everything God is doing. Like we can't see how he's weaving everything together for our good and for his glory. We don't understand how he'll make everything beautiful in his time. So, is Solomon's point to give up the search, to despair, to forget about ever being wise? Well, no. It's basically, we must accept both the praise of wisdom and the limits of wisdom at the same time. They're both true. There is value in wisdom, but it's not ultimate, and it won't ultimately satisfy us. We need the God of all wisdom to do that. Therefore, wise hearts will fear him. So yes, seek wisdom. But seek it realistically. Listen. Learn. Read. Study. Meditate. Teach. Discuss. Sing. Delight in the wisdom of God. But recognize that your heart will only ever be able to grasp so much. As Barnabas Piper explains well, I don't know is the most unsatisfactory phrase we know. It's also one of the most human. We simply cannot know many things, not because we aren't allowed, but because we aren't capable. In Eden, Adam and Eve tried to gain knowledge that was beyond them, and through them, the rest of us have been cursed with the same compulsion ever since. We want to know what only God can know. But we are created beings, created within time and space and scientific laws. We have physical, mental, and emotional limitations. Thus, we live in faith. And faith, by nature, stems from an I don't know. Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We hope we don't see. To live by faith is to rest in the object of our faith, the God of the Bible, and to come to terms with all of our I don't knows. If and when we have wise hearts, we shouldn't expect to know everything or to never suffer, to avoid all pain and problems in this world. I think of Stephen in Acts who is described as being full of the Spirit and of wisdom. 
Bible says that his opponents could not withstand the wisdom with which he spoke. And yet he was seized, arrested, tried, and then killed for his faith. The justice of it all. But did injustice and oppression have the last word? Not at all. Even in his moments of death, of his death, Stephen looked up over the sun and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that reality transformed everything for him, even in his suffering under the sun. The same truth means that not only will all things be well one day, but they're well right now. The Son of God is at the throne of heaven. And therefore, even in the midst of uncertainty or waves of sorrow, the devil's attacks, various trials, the Lord can teach us to say, it is well. It is well with our souls with our hearts. Lord, please make our hearts wise hearts. Would you bless us with this favor? You say if we lack wisdom to ask and you give generously to all without finding fault. So we ask today. Please pour your wisdom out on us. We need it in the days that we live in. And we look forward to the day that we see you and see that it's been well all along because it's under your care and your control and your hand, your power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.